Growing up, I remember one of the things that kind of jogs my memory all the time was growing up, I was jealous uh, of the families around me that um, just seemed so loving and happy all the time. You know, like the families you see at a restaurant, you walk by them and they're just like having the greatest time laughing it up and like things just like, it's like, I don't know what they're celebrating, I don't know what they're eating, but uh, it's really, really good. Or, or the families that, you know, celebrate everything, not just holidays, but like anytime they get together, they're just celebrating like random stuff all the time, just doing everything together, right? The families that don't even need a special occasion, right, who just love to be together all the time. And mind you, uh, I'm dating myself a little bit. I'm not that old, but I grew up in a generation where social media wasn't a thing. And so you wouldn't see the pictures of these things online. You would only hear about it. You would either have to like go over to their house and you would see it, or you would hear them talking about it afterwards. Like I had friends would come into school and they'd be like, oh my goodness, like we did this. What'd you do over the weekend? Oh, we did this. We did this. It was so much fun. Uh, you know, we had some cookout or whatever. Like these types of things, right? You wouldn't find out about it unless they talked about it and they made it a point to share it. Like they couldn't stop talking about their family, that type of thing, which is a very stark contrast to what you find nowadays where if you go out, one of the saddest things that I see is when you go out to a restaurant and you see a family and they're all gathered there at a restaurant and basically everyone is just doing this, right? And they're not even talking to each other kind of the whole thing. And so you see that like that, but the thing, I remember I was jealous simply because, and you probably aren't surprised if you know me a little bit, because my family wasn't like that, right? The families that seemed to love each other, right? Mine simply didn't. Even if we were to celebrate, even if we were to do something special, even go on a vacation or whatever, it was never really fun nor enjoyable because we just didn't really like each other. Let's just be honest, right? In essence, I didn't feel like we were much of a family. We just kind of happened to be related to each other. And some of you, I'm sure, can painfully relate to this, right? The reason why I mention it is because sometimes that's the way church can be. And I think Jesus knew it. I think Jesus knew that that's what it could be, that's what it might be. And so he told his disciples, I think it's why he told his disciples that the way that the world will know that we are Jesus' people, his disciples, is simply through the way that we love each other, the way that Jesus loved us. It's as if Jesus was pre-warning the church and us about an idea that's ever so popular, and you probably heard about it, that people love Jesus, it's just Christians they cannot stand. There's books written about this topic. They love Jesus, they love God, they love what Jesus and God stands for, but the Christians and the church, they just simply cannot stand. Give me a whole bunch of Jesus, but the church, no thank you, kind of an idea. And I think it's primarily because our standard of Christian living, or the standards of the way that we ought to be as Christians, right, how we live, how we act, how we treat one another, is in just being honest, let's just be real, it's really low. We talked about it this entire time, that, the, that the, the, we're the one group of people in the world that are united by the fact that a perfect God, we just saying about it, that a perfect God would love us, die for us, for our sins, so that we could rise together with him. And that all the differences, because of this one fact, that we follow a God who predicted his own death and the resurrection, and then did it, actually did it, and said that we could do the same, that we should love one another differently because of that one fact. But again, the reality is that that just isn't true. One of the times, many of the times, or for some of you, maybe all of the times, right? And again, we've mentioned this throughout, that in Korean churches particularly, and that's the thing that we're really digging into, is that that's the thing that really makes us disappointed. It's not Jesus in his gospel. It's the way that the church lives out his gospel, right? Let's be real. And so after Jesus, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, you know the scene in John 13, he gathers all of them together. And if you know anything about the foot washing, it's, in my opinion, the, the one like, event that most 
kind of captures the cross in terms of love, right? In terms of what we think love is supposed to be. So after he washes all their feet, he gathers all the disciples together and around the table, and then he says this, a new commandment, you'll see it on the screen, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I've loved you. That's the key point. You love one another the way that I have loved you. And in that context, it's literally the foot washing. That you love one another to the degree that I can wash your feet, therefore you can wash their feet, right? That you also love one another like that. And he says this, and this is the kicker, and this is the one thing we have to remember today. By this, the way that you and I love one another is the way that the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we've been saying this throughout this entire series, that this is not some revolutionary concept, right? Like, Jesus is, we we know this, we understand this. If I put it, if I took the words Jesus and the church and all these things, you would really be able to identify. He's saying this, simply, y'all are family because of me. Y'all are sitting around this table because of me. We're gathering this place because of me. And he's telling the disciples, and we know this, I'm going to be gone soon. And the way that you're going to continue to be a family and feel this close to me and to close to one another and be this is to love one another the way that I've loved you. In essence, Jesus is saying the, the hallmark, right, of the, way that you, of the way that people will know me and my message is the way that you treat one another and love one another. Andy Stanley, a pastor down in Georgia while I was there uh, last week, he said, you can get everything else wrong, but you can't get this wrong. The church can get everything else wrong. He, he's exaggerating, and I get it, but he says you can get everything else wrong, but you cannot get this wrong. And then Jesus, because he is who he is, and he feels so strongly about this idea of loving one another, he doubles down in John 17, right? When he's praying for the disciples, it's his final prayer for the disciples, final prayer for the people, and this is what he says in John 17, 9. He's so encaptured with this idea that he has to repeat it back to his father. He says what he says, John 17, 9, 11. You'll see it on the screen. I ask on their behalf, I think it's there, right? Yeah. I do not ask on behalf of the world, right? I ask on the disciples' behalf, not on behalf of the world, right? He makes a clear distinction here, right? For you, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. And he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I'm going to go away, God, but they're going to be here. And I come to you. So then catch this, Holy Father, keep them in the name, the name which you, have, which you have me, that they be one even as we are. So the final prayer that Jesus tells the disciples, or I mean prays to God, and the thing that he tells the disciples after the foot washing is basically the same, that we would be one like the Trinity is one. That we would love one another in such a way that people might confuse that we're not actually all a whole bunch of different people from all different places and ages and groups. That we would actually somehow look like one thing, one people moving around, right? Like God is. Three in one, one in three type of an idea. Many generations from sixth grade all the way on to the oldest person in here. But somehow people look at us and be like, they're one somehow, right? That we would love one another that way. And you as human beings... You know what this is like. You know what oneness is like. You know that oneness, unity, is all about love, a real, deep love, none of this fake stuff, right? And you know this as well as I do. Being in the same place, right, going to the same school or whatever, it helps. But that's not the thing that makes unity. You know that. Being the same race, being the same gender, having the same political views, whatever, affiliations, that helps. Whatever group identifiers you and I have, those help. But they're not going to guarantee oneness or unity or togetherness. You know this. I mean, let's be real. 
Getting married to somebody doesn't even guarantee oneness either. Having the same blood or even having the same name given to you does not guarantee oneness, unfortunately. Oneness only happens, is only maybe guaranteed or is symbolic of love. And not just any type of love, you know, but only the love that Jesus has given. Only the love that God has in and of himself. A love that is willing to die for you even though you don't deserve a single bit of it. That's the only way unity and oneness happens. We, we, we know this. And that's why I mentioned my family because we're a family. We're related by blood, all those things. But for a long time, we weren't one. Nothing close to it. And so then the question we have to ask as a church, kind of as we finish this series on the church, is how do we as a church, how do we, how do, we, how do, we do this? Like, how is this possible? Because it seems like an impossible mountain to climb. Let's just be real. Right? And we talked about it last week, but the simple answer is this. We continue to realize who we are because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, right? Died and resurrected and promised to come back and make us new. And then we worship him because of the fact that he did that. That's a simple answer, but then we ask, well, okay, Pastor, like, like well, you said this already, and, and all these things are like, like Pete, like you, you, you mentioned it, but it's not really helping. We do this already. We're here. We just worship, but we don't feel any more one than we probably did 10 minutes ago. So like, what's the deal? So then I want to turn to then what Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, because I think he was thinking it too. Because in the first letter to the Corinthians, right, the church in Corinth, Paul nails this understanding. And I think he gives us the perfect posture that I think all of us, I hope, will embody and embrace. A reminder of what we will hopefully abide by so that everyone, not only people in here, but everyone, can love Jesus and love Christians too. Because if Jesus is being serious, right, loving Jesus but hating Christians means that his message really in many ways means nothing. It's not actually what it is. You can't have one or the other. You know the passage, uh, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love you know, one another like itself. Um, a, one of my, a friend of mine, uh, pastor, a mentor of mine, Pastor DL uh, in Orlando, he said this one time when I was in college, when I was a stupid kid, well, I'm still a stupid kid, but you know, uh, he said this, that commandment to love God and love one another is like a, a photo finish of like a horse race. Or actually, I saw this video clip the other day. Sorry, I'm going off tangent. Of, of this, of a hurdler, an A&M hurdler team. They were like hurdling. And then this guy at the end started tripping. So then he Superman dove. And then that's how he won. But he like won by like, I don't know if they count the hand or the nose, but like he won just by this much because he like Superman dove. But if you've ever seen a horse race and you see a photo finish, the naked eye, you can't tell who won. But then when you zoom in and you go, you go picture by picture, frame by frame, there's that one final frame where the first horse like literally crosses over it like one millisecond before the second one, and that's how he wins. He says, that's the way this is. Loving God comes first, but only by a photo finish, and you can't have one without the other. You can't, have the, you can't complete the picture without the other. That's, I think, what Paul is getting at, right? Because if we don't do that, then this message of God's grace and God's love and his death and his resurrection, it won't spread. It won't do what it's meant to do. So then we get to this example in 1 Corinthians, and so we'll see it on the screen here in a second. But 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the church as then a body. Let me give you a little bit of background on, on this uh, quickly, uh, not too much here, but Paul writes a letter, and he writes a letter to a bunch of letters, as you know, in the, in the New Testament. He writes this letter to the uh, church in Corinth because in the church is a bunch of divisions, and it's ruining the church. And so he's really, really hurt and really, really concerned by it, right? And the church literally has factions. And you might know a thing or two like this about churches. Like they have factions within it and they're like warring against each other. And they're like having all this friction. 
And then in this section in chapter 12 versus uh, chapter 12 to chapter 14-ish kind of thing, one of the major reasons they have these frictions is because of spiritual gifts, things like praying in tongues and prophesying and so on and so forth, right? And the main reason why these things divided that church and has divided lots of churches since then, right, is because people who had the spiritual gifts were being seen and treated like they're better, right? Like they're somehow more worthy, right? And of course, then the opposite is if you didn't pray in tongues or if you didn't prophesy, you didn't do all these things, then you were attended, you were thought of as worse. I think all of us in the Korean church, it's like the old, I I always say this, but the New Testament church always feels like, I always feel like they're Korean because they have so much of like what we have. It's like there's competition everywhere, all these things, right? And in the Korean modern church, particularly, or just in churches in general, but we we struggle with, I think, a little bit more in the ethnic church here a bit. But it's this idea that whatever you do and all the things that you do, you serve and do all these things, that if you do that, then you're a hardcore Christian over here. And then, of course, if you don't, then you're kind of like, eh. Are you even Christian? Kind of like that kind of a distinction. That's what they're dealing with. And so Paul writes this letter to try to address all these different things. And then in verse, chapter 12, verse 27, he says, he says this. It's crucial. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Before and afterward, he talks about these things like how the eye can't say to the hand, like, I don't need you, or the head to the feet, I don't need you. Every part is important for the body to function as it was designed. And that concept is, if you think about it, it's really easy. We got some doctors in here, and you don't need to be a doctor to understand this concept. I don't, I'm not a doctor, and I understand it, because my knee's bothering the crap out of me today, right? I, I get it, right? Did you think, ask yourself this. Does any part of your physical human body treat another part of the body poorly? And you're probably like, Pastor, that's, Pete, that's a stupid question. Like, what kind of question is that? It's because they don't. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine my bulky knee saying to my elbow, like, bro, you ain't as important as me? Pete needs me so much more than he needs you. So as a matter of fact, you know what? Why don't we just do what we should do? Why don't you just get out of here and, and, and just, just go because you're better off? Like, my knee, even though it's bulky, isn't saying that to my elbow. My elbow can't say it to the knee. Like, that's not the way this works. Every part of our body is interdependent on the other for its well-being. And if you, even if you're one of those people who play the would you rather games, I don't know if you, you know, would you rather this, would you rather that? One of the ones that we used to always do is like, would you rather be able to see or would you rather be able to hear? Have you ever played that game, right? And then you're like, Ugh. and the reason why it's difficult is because both are so important, right? And before one of you smart Alex in the room will say, well, like, well, um, you know, well, what about like being able to see versus like having your hands, right? Like I take eyesight every single time over your hands. Well, to you, I would say, good luck trying to wipe your butt after you know what? No hands. I don't know about you, but it's toss-up. Do I want to see or do I want to have somebody wipe my butt every single time I poop? Like, I, I just, I'm not sure. It's, you know, I know it's a crude example, but it's not as simple as you think, right? So if the church, Paul says, would act like a physical body, we would actually have all the components that we would need to love one another as Jesus has loved us, it seems. And then after he makes that analogy, which is a perfect analogy, He doubles down on this analogy and then he spells it out for us and says, if you are a body and you act like a body, here's what the body will do and here's the love that the body will have for one another. And again, I said, love is the thing that is required for oneness, for unity, for the church to actually be the church. And so after chapter 12, when he talks about the church and the people being a body and all of us being every part of it and every part is really important, then he goes into that famous chapter you all love and you hear a lot of weddings. Uh, The reason why I don't do this at a wedding because Paul isn't talking about couples he's talking about the church but then he goes into chapter 13 and that's the loving chapter right love is this chapter and this is the what I want to focus on for the rest of today right going through bit by bit because for me if we as a church are not doing this 
that it really makes me wonder, as, as sorry as I am to say it, it really makes me wonder, because it makes me wonder when I'm not doing this way, when I'm not loving my wife this way, when I'm not loving my children this way, when I'm not loving my mother-in-law this way, when I'm not loving you this way, whenever I'm not loving somebody this way, it makes me wonder in that moment if I'm indeed being what God has wanted me, but more importantly, if I actually understand and grasp the love that God has given to me. Because it seems to me as we go through this, and I think hopefully you'll see, that you cannot be not this, I know this doesn't make any sense, but you know, bear with me, if you understand Christ's love for you. So when you hear the rest of this, when we talk about what love is, and love is patient, love is kind, we're going to go through all that. When you hear this, the first thing you've got to ask, and don't, 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 don't do the heaping the burden, that's not the point of today. The point of today is, do you know that God loves you this way? And if he loves you this way, then I hope you'd be motivated, moved, the Holy Spirit working you, and that you would want to love others this way. Because for me, if you've ever had anyone love you like this, then it's really difficult to not love others like this. It's just that the two don't fit, in my opinion. Okay, so let's, let's get into it. Uh, chapter 13, right? Um, today I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Actually, I don't even have the NIV here with me, so I'm going to be reading off the screen because uh, I feel like the NIV uses words that we're all more accustomed to, so I just use the NIV today. Normally we read in the NIV, side note, but anyways. And oh, another thing I forgot to mention, a lot of this I learned from Andy Stanley back in Georgia when I was there for the conference, so all credit to him for a lot of this. But let's, let's begin in chapter 13, 1 through 3, okay? And Paul starts off with the bang here. Oh man, I can't read that. Holy moly, my terror. I really apologize. But if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Did you, did you catch that? You could have all these amazing things that we probably all want but not love. Then Paul says you are Three things. One is your resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you don't know what this is like to spend any time at my house when my youngest daughter, Kara, the smallest person in the house, but somehow has the loudest voice, decides she wants to be heard and nothing's going to stop her. She is a resounding gong and you cannot mute. There's no mute button on my Kara. So loud. You just want to just, you wish. That's when I put my, uh, you know, noise-canceling ear, earphones on and jack up the, you know, like, and then the whole like, thing's drawn up. But you, even then, you can't drown her. She could be in her room and I could still hear it in my room, which is crazy. If you do this but don't have love, that's what you are. You're just a, and ain't nobody hearing you but noise. If you prophesy, which is amazing, right? Or if you have all knowledge, fathom mysteries, you have a faith to move mountains but no love. And this is not a euphemism. He says, you, I, am nothing, a zero. And you can't get any more nothing than a zero. Or, I'm a humanitarian hero. I give everything to the poor. I give my body for the church or Jesus. But no love gains you nothing. All of this, Paul says, worship, service, means nothing if you don't have love. And you say, but Pete, last week you said the key is worship, and I did. But I also said last week, how can you worship a God who loves you and all your failures and forgives all of your sin and not forgive or love one another, right? That's the thing. Andy Stanley said, the unapplied truth is like having a paint bucket in your garage. The way I put it is like unapplied truth, because it's so applicable to me, is like having a lawnmower that just sits in your shed. You can say, yeah, 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 I got a lawnmower. It's great. It's got multiple blades, 21 or 40 volts, whatever, whatever. It's, it's you know, like battery powered, all these things. Um, 
but unless you actually mow the lawn with it, it does nothing. It does nothing in your shed. It's hard to do something without knowing, but knowing and not doing something is actually nothing. So all of this, Paul is saying, you can have all of this, but if it doesn't actually move you to do anything outside of here, then what is it? What does it actually mean? Has it had the impact that it's supposed to have? Or are we the kind of people, right, that feel like religious experience is a time where you feel really guilty at church and you cry and you feel convicted and then you go home and you do nothing? So you're like, oh, it was so good, so good. And then your mom says something to you and you're like, what? It does nothing. There's no change, no anything, right? So all these things, but nothing, then nothing. You don't have love. And then he goes into the part that we go and he goes this. So 13.4, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Let's deal with the first one. Love is patient. Andy Stanley says, being patient is like this. He's like, I'm going to adjust my speed and pace to your pace rather than expecting you to adjust your pace to mine. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is one of my greatest life struggles, especially with my wife. One, just simply physically, I'm so much taller and I walk so much faster than her. So like, that's one thing. But on another level, I'm just a really fast-paced person. I'm from the East Coast. I talk fast. I do everything fast. I think I'm smarter than you. That's just who I am. To slow my pace to yours rather than expecting you to step up to mine is one of my hardest struggles. And if you know me, you're probably like, amen, brother. Like, mm-hmm. It's saying, I will meet you where you are rather than waiting for you to get here to where I'm at so we can talk. Have you ever, do you have friends like that or are you that friend? Right? You have a friend and you're like talking and things aren't going well. Uh, couples in the room don't look at each other because it's probably you, right? You know, like you, you have this thing and then like things aren't going well, right? And then you'll be like, okay, I mean, I'm right, so I'm just gonna wait here. I mean, I'll wait till, I mean, I'm ready anytime. Have you ever done that? I'm ready anytime. Come talk to me anytime. Come talk to me anytime. And the person, come talk to me anytime, I'm gonna fall. That's what this is. Patience is not that. Patience is saying, no, 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 no. I'll meet you where you are. If you're going at a certain pace, I will come down to your pace and meet you at your pace because. That's what love is. And then it says love is kind, right? Kindness to me is giving you my strength and my expertise, my knowledge, my wisdom, whatever it is that I got that you don't have in such a way that doesn't make you feel small or remind you that you're weak in this thing. Shoot, that's another thing I am really bad at, right? But this is what every Christian or non-Christian is looking for, isn't it? And that's one of our... That's one of the things that your parents, probably as Asians, really, they, don't, they, they did a really terrible job of this, unfortunately, right? Because they're so, they're so like gung-ho about you that just they, don't, they don't know how to do this. But it's to feel, right, that we're loved, that Jesus loves us, but not to be reminded that I don't know it very well. Again, I don't do this so hot most of the time, right? But to remind you that Jesus loves you, remind you that, yes, you are broken, remind you that you are all these things, but not make you feel like you're not doing anything right, but just remind you that Jesus loves you, right? The athletic example on a team is, right, is the person who can make everyone else better, who carries a team, but then doesn't remind everyone how stinky they are. Sorry to break it to you, Laker fan, or if you're a LeBron fan, LeBron is not very good at this. He reminds everyone that he's the greatest, and you're just not the greatest. Thank you very much. And then you have the opposite. Steph Curry, the greatest shooter in the world, will tell you that his teammates are an awful way better than he. It's this kind of idea. It's a chef who knows that everything that goes out in a restaurant that everyone loves, it's my recipe as a chef, but then praises the line cooks and the prep cooks and saying it's their success that makes this dish what it is. 
kindness. Love does not envy, it says, and does not boast. It is not proud, right? We celebrate the success and accomplishment of others without feeling the need to bring up your own. How hard is that for you? How hard is it for you to celebrate somebody else without having to bring up your own? You're probably like, oh, shoot. For those of you going to college, this is probably really difficult for you, right? Someone else gets a scholarship and you're like, oh, man, so good. Good job on your scholarship, bro. But like, man, I'm so glad that I got the other one that's like 20, 20K. This is what I used to do. There was a time when uh, some of the, I don't know, if, if, if I did this to you, I apologize. This is just a public confession, I feel like, right? Because students would come in here and be like, oh my goodness, Pastor, I got, this, I got this amazing scholarship. I'd be like, good job. Reminds me of the time I got the governor's award and I got 25K. And then, of course, yours is like 2000. Like, hmm? You know, like that kind of an idea, right? Or like in the workforce, you're like, great job on your promotion. It must mean you're so good at what you do. It reminds me, you know, like, because that time when I was working at the bank or whatever, and I got a promotion in three months, I was the youngest person on the job, but they gave me the promotion because, you know, I'm just really good. That's how, that's how most they, they must think of you, right? That's not what this is, this is. It's celebrating the accomplishments of others even more than they're willing to celebrate it themselves. It's celebrating something until you feel it. Later on, we're going to be praying for Lindsay as she goes. She's going to uh, Philly. She got a great job over there. She's done great. She just became a doctor. You can call her Dr. Lindsay Lee if you want, right? But it's celebrating her and her goodness even way more than she's willing to. Celebrating in such a way that I feel like I've done something amazing. Not because I've done anything amazing, but just because she and God is doing all this in her. This love is a kind in which envy starts to creep in. You say, no, 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 envy, you've got nothing on this. You're not the boss of me. Jealousy is a real thing, particularly in our culture. But before it becomes a thing, you say, no, 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 I'm not doing this. Is this the way we love one another? Because this is what Christ does for us. One day, it says that as we are Christians... We're going to enter and go to the gates, and he's going to look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think about this, and then I go, does he really mean it? Because to his standard, I'm like, not even, you know what I mean? Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Then we keep going. Verse 5, love, right? It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Anything that isn't good or honoring of another, you throw it out. We mentioned this last week, but that's why the first Christian church had such a strong sexual ethic. Because anything, right? Again, we, we, we talked about it last week, that husbands were allowed to do whatever they wanted to. They could be married and then go have and, and, and you know, sleep with anybody. And that's just a thing, Right? But the reason why none of those things that the Christian church did is because they were so adamant that none of those things are honoring of the other. Because none of those behaviors were honoring of the wives, the children, anyone. If it's a sin and not honoring somebody, you throw it out. We've said it before. You ruthlessly get rid of it. And before you think, oh, that's really difficult. But again, you remind yourself, how am I able to dishonor someone with all authenticity and legitness? That's not a word, but you know what I mean. If God does not dishonor me, even though I am so filthy and just a bunch of rags. If God in heaven has chosen to honor me, though I don't deserve it, how can I possibly think that I am anything great to dishonor someone else, no matter who they are? 
I mean, like, we've been digging into this love on a real level, but they just ratcheted it up a notch, didn't they? But again, think, this is the way God treats you. Then, next part, not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. Two quick things here, right? Notice it doesn't say that love is never angry. That's one thing that I think we think in our culture, that love cannot be angry. No, no, no. And again, I remind you, God hates sin, and so should we. It's just that he, and therefore love, isn't easily angered. Love isn't just this nice guy, feel-good thing. Yes, love uplifts us most of the time, but love disciplines us. It isn't easy, but it's so necessary. And also doesn't say that love forgets our sin. No, no, no. It's just that God knows all of yours, all of my, all of our sin. It's just that he does not keep a record, a.k.a. does not use it against us when it's most convenient. My parents used to do this all the time. I would do something wrong, and they would pretend like nothing happened. You just not talk about it. And then a couple months later, something else would happen, and then he would bring up a whole Rolodex of all the things that I've done wrong. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know that's what we're talking about today. That kind of an idea. Love doesn't erase your memory banks. No, 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 you just don't hold it against the other because that's what God does. And now again, I want to address this really quickly because I think all of us hope and think that we should just forget the bad things, that your parents should just forget, that we should all just forget, that God would forget. But I hope you understand that that can't be. Because one, you just can't forget. Well, that's just one thing. It's not even possible. But imagine, can you imagine what would actually happen if Jesus forgot your sin? Do 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 you know the ramifications of that? If Jesus forgot your sin, you know the cross isn't a thing? Why would he go to the cross if he forgot your sin? Because to forget means that it never happened, or you think it never happened, or you don't remember that it happened. Then why would he have to die on the cross for your sin if he doesn't think that you sinned? It doesn't work that way. Which means you, though God has conveniently forgotten your sin, would still be left with nothing because he didn't actually pay for the sin that needs to be paid for. This is tough, I know. But I think you will feel how necessary this is. I mean, ask yourself, do you know someone that you've hurt really bad? And if you're a normal human being like me, then I guarantee you there is someone. So think of the person that you know that you've hurt, and they know that you, they're hurt by you. But have you ever had any one of those people who knows that you've hurt them, who has not forgotten that you've hurt them, but yet continues to extend kindness and patience and grace to you? How do you feel about that person? Are you mean to them? Thirteen six, love, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It means we're in this together. It means when you fail, when evil wins, I feel it and I fail with you. It means when you succeed, I feel it just as much as you. And again, you feel the tension in your heart, don't you, right? Because if in our culture and in the world that we live in, we like it when people who've hurt us or failed us then fail themselves. Deep in our hearts, we go, serves you right. You had it coming. <laughs> Deserved it. Yep, knew that was going to happen to you. But love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We're in this all together. 
Again, keep asking yourself, this is the way that God is. But if you had a friend, someone who loved you like this, how would you feel? Let's keep moving. 13.7, love always protects and it always trusts. Always hopes and always perseveres. Let's deal with the first two, protects and trusts. This is saying that love is in such a way that I'm always going to have your back and I'm always going to protect you or her. Love is a kind of a love when people speak ill or wrongly of someone, I'm going to protect that someone. Which means that if we're the church and we're a church of love, then it means that everyone here has everyone's back and you don't have to wonder whether they have your back or not. Love is in such a way, Andy Stanley says, it's providing a generous explanation of the other's behaviors and wrongs. Love is a kind of a thing that I hope you know. If you and I sin against one another, then we'll deal with it and we'll discipline one another in such a way. But everywhere else, especially within this place, we have each other's back. We, we provide a generous explanation. You know someone that does things that just bothers you and just, just drives you crazy? And you know the instinct to say, oh, that's because so-and-so and so-and-so. If you knew my story and the way that I grew up, a lot of times people would be like, oh, that's just because he grew up that way. Giving a generous explanation undoes all of this. To always provide a generous explanation, and you do it again and again and again, and guess what? That person will eventually live to that great expectation. And again, isn't this what God does for us? He announced our forgiveness and therefore our ability to have life way before we even knew we needed it or did anything to have it. He protected and he trusted in us and therefore he proclaimed it to others that we would be his people. Love, it says, always hopes. This is never judging anyone by the cover, never writing them off as if they are done. And the reason why we can't do this is because when I write you off or when I write somebody else off and think that they're no longer good for anything, it means that Jesus is a fool because he has not written you off. I don't want to go into it because we're running out of time, but I recognize for me that Jesus should have, could have, and, and if anyone else would have written me off a long time ago. Trust me on that one. Jesus should have, could have, and would have sized me up and said, yep, not much going on there in that Pichung. Let's move on. He ain't ever going to amount to nothing if you just look at his past, if you look at everything that he's got. He's never going to actually do anything, and he wouldn't be wrong about that. He would absolutely be right about that, at least about me. But Jesus always hopes. Isn't this the reason why he doesn't give up on Peter? Not me, but the Peter in the Bible, the one who denies him three times. Love always hopes and never writes anybody up, never sizes you up and says, nope, I'm giving up on that. Nope, nope, you're not worth my time. That's not what it does. And therefore, love always perseveres. And then the next part, love always perseveres, and then boop. Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. Next screen. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remained, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This type of love is a love that lasts. 
I think what Paul is telling us in this last part is that we're all mistaken or wrong about many things, probably about most things, if we're being honest. But the one thing that we cannot be wrong about and the one thing that we are not wrong about is the love that Jesus has for his Father and therefore has for us. This we must be sure about. I'm always reminding myself, my knowledge, my prophecy, a.k.a. preaching or whatever you want to call it, all of it temporary. But the thing that will last is indeed the love of Jesus. You can take that to the bank every single time. Now, we've talked a lot and we've gone over these things really quickly and in some ways maybe hopefully thoroughly. But here's where we want to finish. And I want you to ask yourself this and I want you to think about this as we even sing the songs and reflect as we think about what our church is going to be. Do you know the way Jesus loves you? Do you understand in your heart the way that Jesus loves you, the way that he sees you, the way that he understands you, the way that he receives you? Do you know it? Because that's where everything is based off of. For a long time, I think in the church, and, and I'm guilty, I think we always thought like, oh man, you know what? I know that so-and-so is, gonna, is a good Christian when they're doing A, B, C, and D. And I can get you, and I can, and I, I'm being honest, I can motivate you to do A, B, C, and D anytime I want to if I'm just being honest. But the more that we dig and the more that we understand and the more that we see what all this is about, what the church is all about, is in understanding and asking ourselves this question, do you really know how Jesus indeed loves you? How do you understand the person that has predicted his death and his resurrection and that he did that for you? The way I look at it is you can know anything, you can actually know everything, but if you don't know how Jesus loves you, then you don't know nothing. Let me repeat that. You can know anything and you can indeed know everything, but if you do not know how Jesus loves you and has loved you and will love you, then you simply don't know nothing. Because all that stuff, it fades, it's temporary. Yesterday uh, at the house, um, Chris, our, our long-haired uh, fellow over there, um, our executive producer of our podcast, we were recording a podcast at our house, and the topic was anxiety. And I only mention this because it just jogged my memory. But you have to ask yourself, when we talked about anxiety and the issues and why it exists and all that kind of stuff, and then we kind of get to, and it comes, from, it comes from Scripture, but I said, anxiety only happens when you try to put your trust and your worth and your value, your security, your identity in things that you know aren't going to last. When you put your trust in things that you know won't last forever, then you will automatically forever have a bit of anxiety in your heart because you know that's not going to last. The only way you get rid of that is when you put it in God because you know he's forever and he does not fail and he's perfect. It's we tell, we tell premarital couples all the time, if you think that the love of your spouse is going to carry you to the end of your life, good luck. It ain't going to work. They're not superhuman. They're not God. They're not perfect. And so church, as we finish up this little series, uh, next week Faith and, and her family are going to be sharing about what they're doing over there in a country I can't name online because it's going to be online. But um, as we go and as we go into the summer and as we kind of start to grow in this capacity, here's where I want to go. And as I invite the praise team up, here's where I want to stand. And here's where all of this kind of comes together for me. 
Why are we here? What brings you to this place? I'm going to be honest. Our body in this church and this congregation is going to look really messy at a lot of the times. In two weeks, it's going to look really messy because we're going to invite 43 literal green newbie fifth graders who aren't even sixth graders yet into this service, and they're going to look at all of you. I'm, actually, I'm picturing right now fitting 43 more people in here, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, right? But we're going to invite them, and guess what? They, they're ready, or they used to worship, and for some of you in sixth grade or whatever, seventh grade, you're like, oh, hallelujah, amen. You, they used to worship like this, where worship was 30 minutes long or 40 minutes long, right? The sermon was 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long, and I got to listen to this face, like talk for 40 minutes. It's going to look messy. They're not going to be quiet. They're going to get restless and jittery and do all these sorts of things. There are a lot of times when this isn't going to look the way that we want it to look. It's not going to act and function the way that we're going to act and function. But I hope that as we've been digging deep into what makes us a church and what really we're trying to do, that I hope the thing that you would really connect with continually through and through is the God who loves you to the degree that he would die for you so that you wouldn't have to die. That you would come to grip face to face with just how wretched you are, how wretched I am. And that you would then take that and that you would embody that, you would understand that love and that you would then be able to move in that love. Because when we do that, then loving one another is not actually hard. It just becomes a thing you know you ought to do and you want to do. Then people won't say, I love Jesus, but you Christians, I can't stand. Why? Because then they'll say, I love Jesus, and you Christians, somehow you remind me of him. I love our church, and I love how messy it can be, because it's the place that reminds me that God's love is alive and real. And so church... Would you continually, little by little, thoroughly just dig yourself into this love that God has given to you? Would you remind yourself of the kind of love that God is continually giving to you, the love that we talked about today, the love that is patient, the love that is kind, the love that is generous, a love that does not boast, does not envy, all these things that he gives unto you. And as a result, and as a reminder, and as a response to that, then shall we as a church Say, then we are willing to love each other that way. And if we do, then I believe this place will become the place that we all hope it will be, a place where anyone from the outside can walk in and say, man, there's a love in that place. There's a goodness in that place. There's a joy in that place. There's a grace in that place. There's a, there's a, there's a spirit, a life in that place. That we would indeed be a people that celebrate each other's successes, cry with each other's failures, and everything in between, and that we'd all be together as we grow in the light and in the love of Christ. As we finish, uh, I wanted us to just invite us, um, it's actually very fitting in some ways, um, to pray. One, we're going to pray for Dan and Becky. Um, they just had their beautiful little daughter. Um, it's funny, on Instagram, I think everyone thought I had a fourth baby. I did not. It's not mine. It's Dan and Becky's. Um, but pray for them and little Chloe. If you don't know who they are, uh, Dan and Becky, Dan's a, a doctor. Becky uh, works at the preschool. She teaches. Uh, they got four kids, Kayla, Kay, Kaden, Caleb, and Chloe. Say that four times fast. Um, so pray for them. 
celebrate with them the joy of what they have. And then we're also going to then pray for Lindsay, who will be leaving to Philadelphia. And we've been so, so glad to have her for the last three years uh, here. She's been such an amazing part of our community. But we want to bless her and send her off and say, you go and do amazing things in Christ and shine the light in a city in your university. She's going to Temple University as a professor, Dr. Lindsay Lee. So we're going to just take a couple minutes and we're going to pray. So would you, uh, in your place, um, just in your heart, but also to the Lord, would you cry out and celebrate these things together? Let's celebrate the joy of new life. We're going to invite, we're going to be inviting, a, or not inviting, welcoming a couple more babies in a couple months. I'm so excited for that. Um, but today, just indeed, pray for Chloe, pray for Dan and Becky, pray that God, God would fulfill them. God would give Dan and Becky a love that only he has for them, that he would, they would then be able to give it to their children, especially little Chloe. And then also then pray for Lindsay. Pray that she would go above all of her fears and worries and concerns, that she would then live the light that God has given unto her and that people would know God better through her. And then the praise team will sing us out as we sing together. And this time, I know we don't do this, we normally sit for the first one, but after we pray, when the praise team does begin, would you rise with them? And let's just sing gloriously together as we celebrate our God together. So let's pray together, and then we'll sing.